Well, I'm happy to be here, and I, I feel enthusiasm in the room, as if I might have something to say. So I'm going to talk about faith in Buddhism, which is really an interesting subject, because there isn't much there, you know? Amen, brother. You know, yeah, there we go. But I, I was able to find some. It took me a while, and I'm going to share that with you. But I wanted to share just briefly the story of Siddhartha Gautama and, 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 and becoming the Buddha, going from Siddhartha to the Buddha, sort of like the way Jesus went to Christ. You know? And I had an epiphany while I was here about the story of the Buddha. And I want to share that with you and, and tell you what I came to understand. So here was this guy. His name was Siddhartha. And, and he was a prince, and he had a really good life. And then one day he went out into the streets of the city with his charioteer and he saw this really old guy, this really sick guy, and this really dead guy. All in one day. It's just sort of, it's like downtown L.A. actually. <laughs> and then on the way back to the palace, after seeing all this, he saw a religious person dressed in white, calm, serene, and he asked his charioteer, Chana, why isn't that guy suffering? I just saw so much suffering. And Chana said, because he's a religious person, he has a religious path. He's working on transcendence. And I think that planted a seed in the mind of the future Buddha that the religious path was the path he was going to take and not become the next king. So, sort of like Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, you know, they had their, well, they had their first child later in life. And Siddhartha, at the age of 29, had his first child, even though he'd been married a long time. And it said on the very night his child was born, he called his child Rahula. Now, Rahula means fetter or impediment. I don't know how many parents would call their kids fetter or impediment in the beginning, but maybe towards the end. <laughs> so, so he kissed his wife goodbye. Imagine Prince Harry kissing his wife goodbye after the first child and says, I'll be back when I find the answer to suffering. Now, why would he do that? Why would he be so eager to find the answer to suffering? I said to myself, in my room, up the hill there. And it dawned on me, because he had a kid, and he didn't want his kid to suffer. You know? It was a very personal reason that turned out to be useful for anybody in this world who decided to become a Buddhist. So six years, he worked really hard, he did all these ascetic practices, he meditated, he hardly ate anything, and after six years he sat beneath the Bodhi tree and he achieved enlightenment nirvana. He became free. He became perfected. He was a perfect human being. And you say, but there aren't any perfect human beings. And that's why Buddhas are so rare. Because he became perfect, and perfect in this way. Instead of having greed, he only had generosity. 
Instead of having anger and hatred, he only had compassion and loving kindness. Instead of having delusion and ignorance, he only had wisdom and insight. Perfect in that way, a perfect human being. Now, he talked for 45 years. We have a lot of his talks. They were really good. But one of the things I noticed about his talks is he never said, I can do it for you. He said, you got to do it. He said, I can tell you what I did. And if you can do that, you will achieve nirvana. Now, let me explain nirvana and enlightenment, because later on in the talk, I'm going to be speaking about enlightenment and not nirvana. And this portion of the talk, I'm speaking about only nirvana. Nirvana, the end of suffering while you're alive. The end of suffering while you're alive. You'll never suffer again. Nirvana, the end of your karma. Nirvana, the end of all future rebirths. You'll never be reborn again. Now, that's a hard sell. Because even if our life is terrible, it's better to be here than not be here. So what the heck was he talking about? Never to be reborn again. This is what I came up with. He figured out a way to exist without being born. Now, that is a remarkable statement because everything on this planet had a first cause. Buddhism doesn't have a first cause. Always been here, always will be. Just a big circle. Keeps going on and on. Anything that's born, anything that's created has to die. Anything. The planet, the sun, the biggest mountains... Wow, the deepest seas, they're all going to go away. They're all going to, because there was a first cause. And everybody's really happy about the first cause. Have you noticed that? I've noticed that. Like you get a little baby just born and everybody's so happy. Oh, look at him. He looks just like dad. Man, that's a great looking baby. And I'm thinking, man, he's got a whole life of suffering ahead of him. You can tell I'm single. (laughs) And then he's going to have to die. And then he's going to be reborn to suffer again. And he's going to have to die again. And then he's going to lose every pet he ever had, every mother or father he ever had, every sibling he ever had. He's going to cry so many tears in all those lifetimes it could fill the oceans with the sadness of being alive on earth. Okay? Now... If you can figure out a way to exist without being born, and that's what nirvana is, unborn and undying, you can have a completely new kind of existence that will not have an end to it. And so all the people that have achieved nirvana are living in nirvana after they die. Okay, that's what I came up with. That sounds really good to me. Though we have heavens and we have hells, I don't want you to think we just go to nirvana or no place. We've got 33 heavens and we have 33 hells. And we got like a lot of places to go. And you know what? Do you know what gets us there? It isn't faith. It's not belief. It's not grace. The thing that gets us to heaven is karma. Our intention, speech, and action defines what will happen next. And if we have good, skillful speech, intention, action, we will go to heaven when we die. 
And if we're not so skillful, we will go to hell when we die. But the great thing about heaven and hell in Buddhism is temporary. You're not there forever. The only forever we have is nirvana. But you're there a really long time. Like a hundred thousand lifetimes, you're in heaven. And all of a sudden, somebody comes over to you and says, you got to leave, man. Why? Because your karma wore out. You couldn't create any new karma because everything in heaven is perfect. You got to go back to earth to create some new karma where everything is not so perfect. So you get back to earth and a human being if you're lucky, but maybe dog and cat. That's the first hell realm, animal realm, first hell realm. And I'm thinking, man, dogs and cats, they get a pretty good life as long as they find somebody to take care of them. And what are some of the characteristics of the animal realm where you might end up? It's not very inspiring. When you go to the animal realm, all you want to do is sleep, eat, and have sex. And I thought to myself, in high school, I was probably in the animal realm. So, so here he was now, and he comes back after his nirvana, and he didn't go home. He didn't go home. He didn't say to his son, hey, I figured it out. You're not going to have to suffer again. He started teaching five ascetics, then more people, more people. He had like a lot of people following him. They were all reducing suffering or ending suffering. And then the mother, his wife, found out what village he was in. And she said to her son, Rahula, go and talk to your dad. Get your inheritance. He used to be a prince. He's got a lot of money. He needs to give it to you. So Rahula found him. And Rahula said, Dad, I want my inheritance. And the Buddha said, okay. And he ordained him. (laughs) Well, Mom wasn't happy about that. So mom went to ask the Buddha why he took the child away from him and ordained him. And the Buddha and the wife sat down and talked, and he ordained her. (laughs) Now, it is said that both of them achieved nirvana, and both of them ended their suffering. So it worked. He figured it out. So I'm reading Buddhism, and I'm thinking, okay, where does faith enter? And let's talk about the four truths real quick, and we'll see if there's any faith involved in that. So the first truth is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. That no matter how hard we try to have a good life, we're always defeated by impermanence, all the suffering, and not being who we think we are. So we keep suffering. We want things to be different. We have great desire that can never be ultimately satisfied. We have aversion and attachment. Even Disneyland closes. And when it does, we suffer. So you go, well, no faith needed there. All you need to do is live. And you know he's talking the truth. Now, me, when I came to Buddhism, I had a good life. I just wanted to learn how to meditate. I wasn't suffering. I had a car and a girlfriend, a job. And then I started studying Buddhism, and I realized my life was in shambles. I was suffering every day, which I hadn't realized before. 
And I'm going, oh man, maybe I shouldn't have come to meditate. Because <laughs> you know? now all I do is suffer. But the second truth is why we suffer. And that's because of desire. We all have desire. Sometimes desire seems like it's good, but it always turns out to be unsatisfactory because it's never ultimately satisfied. You go to the beauty parlor, you get your hair done, you think, wow, this is fantastic. You walk outside today, it's gone. You go, man. You know? I was so happy. It was so perfect. So this desire and this craving, the thirst that can't be quenched, that's the root of our suffering. So the idea is to get rid of the desire. Now, people say, well, how do you live without desire? Because you sort of got a desire to get up in the morning. You know, sometimes it's work, sometimes it's just you got to go pee. But there's always a reason to get up in the morning. And isn't that desire? And I say, yes, it is. And I don't know how to live without desire yet because I'm not enlightened. So all my desires lead me in certain directions, but I'm getting better at recognizing what the good desires are and what the bad desires are. So there's no faith needed there. All we need to do is study and reflect and understand. But now we come to the third truth. This is where the first faith option occurs. The third truth is nirvana, the end of suffering. There is no obvious reason that there would be any end to suffering. That you need a little faith stepping forward into that concept, that paradigm, to think it might be true. It might be true. But until I prove it to myself, I'm going to question it. And the only way you can prove it to yourself is to achieve nirvana. So you may have to carry that faith with you the rest of your life because it will never be satisfied until you achieve nirvana. And then the fourth truth is the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And that's the path to nirvana. That's how you live your life. That's how you understand your life. So there's really no faith in that either because as you practice that, what little faith that might have brought you there turns into confidence and you feel sure, given enough time or enough lifetimes, that you will achieve the goal, the goal of nirvana. Now we have a question about practice. Buddhism is not a faith religion for the most part. It is a practice religion for the most part. It gives you something to shoot for, and it tells you how to get there, and your job is to practice enough to turn the practice into performance. Okay? Now, I didn't really understand that concept, practice to performance. But back in 1980, I bought a book, Blues Harmonica for the Musical Idiot. And I'm thinking, I qualify. All I got to do is just study this book, listen to the little audio cassette, and I'll be able to play the blues before you know it. Well, years later, I was still practicing. I just didn't get it. I couldn't figure out how to play the blues. Was it because I was a white guy and my life was so good? Well... No, I had issues. I had problems. Okay. Did you have to feel it? You had to feel it. I wasn't feeling it. I was practicing it. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. 
it never turned into the blues. It just turned into music. And I wanted the blues. So one day, I pulled that harmonica out and I put it to my lips. And for whatever reason, the blues happened. And I don't know exactly what the reason was. Because it takes a lot of conditions for anything to happen. They say at least 10,000 things need to happen before one thing happens. So whatever those 10,000 things were, it happened for me. And at that point, it went from practice to performance. And I just happened to have my harmonica here. So let's see what performance sounds like. Here we go. Isn't that, this is a little one. This is called the Big Six. You know? And I loved it because it was smaller than a 10-hole harmonica. And any time you have restrictions on anything, you have to be more creative. You have to find the workaround. So I thought, man, if I could play this, I could play anything. Not the case. But it sounded good at the time. So here we go. A little blues in the key of G. My biku bag down the wall. <laughs> now, see, I can't even take. I can't take responsibility for that. I can't feel the acclaim for that because when you do performance, you're not there. So people say, "Well, that was really good." I'm going, "Well, thank you." I don't know who was playing though, but they were pretty good. Okay, so now we're faced with the dilemma of. Mahayana Buddhism, the reform movement. These are the Protestants of Buddhism. <laughs> so Theravada are the Catholics, I should get my... And Mahayana are the Protestants. And faith became very important to Mahayana Buddhism. But let me explain what the end goal is, according to me, of Mahayana Buddhism. It is not nirvana. It is enlightenment. And when I first came to Buddhism, I heard a lot about enlightenment and nirvana, and they seemed to be interchangeable. 
And I said, that doesn't work for me. I got to figure out a better way of understanding enlightenment and not have it be nirvana. So this is what I came up with. Enlightenment, according to me, is the interconnectedness and the interdependence of all phenomena. One more time. The direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. So what does that mean? It means we're never really independent. We're always, we're always connected to everything else. And when I hear the word one, I hear the many connected, which would be more unity probably rather than uniformity. In my mind, that's sort of how it works. Now, do you end your suffering in enlightenment? No. Unfortunately, you don't. But you have a, a rarefied vision of reality. And you can see reality in a much different way when you understand that we are all interconnected and all interdependent. I like to think of a, a normal way of becoming enlightened, walking on the beach. And the moon is there and the ocean waves are, are rippling across the sand. And all of a sudden you seem to disappear into the experience. You're no longer separate from that. And it just lightens your load dramatically. And you realize at that one moment the universe has embraced you and said, welcome home. And then the next moment the speedboat goes by and there you are back on the beach going, what the hell just happened? It must have been what I ate today. <laughs> but no, it was an enlightenment experience that didn't last. We have a lot of those, those many enlightened experiences, and they're temporary, and they're hard to identify, and generally we think something's wrong. But it turns out something's right. So you're meditating and meditating, and then you have that can show experience and then you have enlightenment experience and then you don't exist in the way you used to exist and everything seems a bit more transparent. You go, wow, wow, okay. You know, this is good. I like this. And then, and then you look out on the world and you realize everybody's suffering. Nobody's having a good day. And it hurts you because you've opened yourself up to the possibility that they are you and you are them. You are interconnected. And at some point in your Mahayana Buddhist practice, you have to respond to that suffering that you see. And you might even take the Bodhisattva vows. I vow to save all sentient beings. You know that's an impossible task. It will never happen. And yet you take that vow because it's meaningful to you. You know, we got 7 billion right now. Pretty soon we'll have 8 billion. Then we'll have 9 billion. Just more and more people suffering. Not to speak of all the animals that are suffering and being slaughtered all the time. And all, all the, the ways we create suffering in the world. Being human. Major one is war. Let's go to war. We're right. They're wrong. We'll show them. We'll wipe them all out. And then the only people left will be us. And we're right. But they always miss one or two. You know? <laughs> so it just never quite works. But the suffering. Whoa. 
So here we are, and we say to ourselves, okay, I need great faith. Not just little faith, not just thinking that maybe the third noble truth is possible, but great faith. When you say to yourself, I'm going to save all sentient beings, that is just ludicrous. And yet somehow you have the faith and the persistence and the mindset to move forward with that. And you get better, and you get better, and you might decide to be a monk. You go, wow, I can work full-time now at saving the world. But you got to wash the dishes, you got to sweep the grounds. You know, it's hard to work full-time on saving the world. And I've come to the conclusion that we can't save the world. And the world just will always be a terrible place. And what we can do is solve the problem of the people suffering in the world. That's a terrible place. Now, when I say terrible place, I know. You're looking at me like, I don't know, Kusla. There's some good stuff in the world, you know. But have you ever gone to Iraq? I haven't. But it doesn't look very good there. How about Afghanistan? That sound a pretty good place to go? How many places in the world would just be filled with so much suffering, you would just trip out and go, how can people live like this? Why do they put up with it? Well, they don't have any choice. They haven't heard about Buddhism. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know, when I went to the state prison as a volunteer and juvenile hall as a volunteer, they listened carefully. I said, is anybody here suffering? Every hand went up. I said, hey, let me tell you about suffering and the end of suffering. Yeah, man, tell us. We don't want to suffer anymore. It's so cool. I go to Paulus Verde to speak at the high school. Anybody here suffering? You know what? I didn't get the new car that I wanted. Oh, I know what you mean. <laughs> Life isn't good. Let me tell you about CarMax. You can go down there and get that new car. So it depends where you're coming from. And if you're not suffering right now, if your life is really good, I would say to you, enjoy it, because it will change. Now, I know Buddhism doesn't sound very positive. But, but what we have working for us is we're realistic. It can be proven through self-examination or testing. All the stuff I've just talked about, you can go out in the world and test it out, see if it's true to you. If it's not true to you, there's no reason you should be a Buddhist. You know, I've been invited to do a couple weddings, and they've always been festive occasions. And bride and the groom are so happy, they have a whole life ahead of them. It's just excellent. So I go there and I do the vows and I give a little sermon and I tell them, you know, you only got the best ahead of you. And the rest of the time I don't say anything. Because <laughs> there's nobody suffering. They don't need to hear from me. I just sit down and eat, have an extra piece of cake, and I leave. I did my job. Now, four or five years later, they call me and say, you know, it's just not working out. I got something to say this time. So, so we have an odd way of looking at the world. And when something happens that's good, it's always unexpected. Now, how would you like to have a life like that? You're always expecting the worst. It's never going to be the way you think it should be, the way you want it to be. And then one day it is. 
for a few moments or a few hours that day. It's just the way it's supposed to be. We just stand up and cheer. Wow, look at this. This is perfect. And then it changes. And we go, oh, man. I know what the Buddha was talking about. There's nothing here forever. Moment to moment. Good stuff, bad stuff. Can't change the world. What can you change? You can change yourself. You can change the way you experience the world. You can change what you expect from the world. I was talking to Daniel yesterday. I said, Daniel, I've been doing a lot of thought now. When I turned 70, it sort of tripped me out. Because when I was 30, and I used to meet people who were 70, I knew they'd be dead soon. Yeah, well, there we go. And now I'm 70. I'm one of those guys, you know? So I've been doing a lot of reflection on my life. And I said, Daniel, you know what I've come to understand about my life? He said, what's that? I said, I have enough. He said, do you have enough? Nobody ever has enough. There's always more. No, Daniel, I have enough right now. And it's very, it's calming and peaceful to have enough. You're not driven by commercialism or, or peer groups or wanting to be the best and the latest. It's just sort of like, hey, I got enough. And if you want to be rich, there's only two ways you can do it. Make more money or need less. I took the second route. I just need less. And I have enough. And I thought to myself, I'm lucky. Because most people can't honestly say that to themselves. So this path that I've chosen, or perhaps the path that chose me, has allowed me to look at the world in a radical way. And I see that faith is necessary in the Mahayana tradition because you're going to be doing a lot of things that are impossible to do. And not only that, you're going to have to be reborn, and you take a vow to be reborn as a human being as many times as it takes to end suffering. Forever. You're going to be keep coming back here forever. Lake Arrowhead in a thousand years, how is it going to be? And there you are. Anybody suffering in Lake Arrowhead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The boat sank. Oh, no. So faith is necessary to get us through the day. When we start to see how, how terrible it can be and will be, and we need the faith to know that we can do something on the inside even if we can't do something on the outside. So if you see homeless people and they're hungry, give them an apple. Buy them some food. You're not going to change their lifestyle, but you will get rid of the hunger for a while. You know, you see somebody who hasn't eaten in a few days. Now, you go on retreat, you don't eat for a week. They call it fasting. (laughs) You don't eat for two days, you call it starving. So it's all relative. It's all in the way you look at it. And being sensitive to all those issues allows you to grow as a human being. I was having a conversation with a person at the table today, and I said, you know, I never go on vacation. Really? You never go on vacation? I said, no, no. I said, where do you go when no one suffers? Because I'd be putting sunscreen lotion on the backs of people in Hawaii just because they're suffering. Then, so you look at yourself and you say, but you know, 
I don't even have a job. I'm lucky enough not to have a job. I have a lifestyle. And the lifestyle doesn't give you time off. You know, the big weekend comes. Hey, man, it's just another day to me. Cats need to get fed. Posts need to be on Facebook. I got stuff to do, you know? (laughs) It's another day. So it takes a while to get used to that, never having a day off. It takes a while to get used to not having a job. Because it gives us an identity. It gives us a direction to go in. It gives us money. Wow, money. How do we live? You know how we live? We live in an economy of generosity. That's why we can't get married and have kids or have sex. It's too expensive. (laughs) We live because of what people give us. And you you can't depend on donations. You know, the bills come and you didn't get the donations. Man, you are a mess. But even more importantly than that, the reason the Buddhist monks don't get married and have sex is a really important reason. And it is because we have come to understand that in a relationship, you will be happy. You will be in love. You will be satisfied. You will be fulfilled. But there is one thing you will never be, and that is free. Free? Who wants to be free? You say, I love the prison of my relationship. We can change the furniture on. <laughs> you change the furniture on, maybe get some new pictures, you know. It looks fine, you know. And then, then the kids, oh, those are perfect kids, you know. I, I understand somebody said one time that the best parent is the one who doesn't have children. So, you know, the kids start coming, and then you have to help them grow up. And in order to have, help them grow up, you have to grow up. And it's just like this never-ending battle. Come on, you can do it. You can leave. We'll get you an apartment. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so we don't have any of that stuff to go through. We just got it sort of easy, if you will. It's just us, you know? And, and then, after all that suffering and all the faith and all the families or non-families, and then you got to die. And you know what? Death is really a problem. Because we got, like, a lot of stuff we want to do. And, and we have a lot of stuff if you have a family. And who's going to get all the stuff? And they're always fighting over the stuff. You go, oh, man, I should have given it away while I was alive. You know? So I was talking a couple days ago about death, and I said, nobody dies well. And I want to be that nobody. Huh? I want to be that guy. I want to get rid of all the ego I have, all the attachment I have, all the aversion I have, Because I know I'm going to have to die. And when I know I'm going to have to die, it means I'm more engaged in everything I do while I'm alive. Death is my co-pilot. And he talks to me every day. He says, Kusala, you're moving to the front of the line. (laughs) No! (laughs) Not the front of the line. Come on! Soon you'll be next. 
No. Yes. How's my karma? Have I worked on my karma? Do I have good karma? Will I have a good rebirth? What is preventing me from working on my karma? Me. I need to be better. I need to be more skillful. I need to have better thoughts every day. I need to have better speech every day. I need to have better actions every day. That will be my ticket to heaven. And none of us know when that day will arrive. That's the weird part about death. We don't know when. If we could, we could maybe get ready for it. You know, have that last to-do list filled out. Something. But we don't know. That's the mystery of our life. The mystery. So as a Buddhist, we oftentimes just sit in the mystery and say to ourselves, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know. And somehow we figure it out at some level and we continue. And then we continue. And then one day we don't continue. And hopefully the karma that you have created for yourself will take you to the heaven realm and give you a couple hundred lifetimes of vacation. Just being in the heaven. Look at all these things are here. I'm so happy. It is so wonderful to get ready for your next rebirth in the human realm where all the suffering occurs. So there is faith in Buddhism. Sometimes it's hard to find. Sometimes it's right in front of your face. It's always necessary. Some level of faith in anything you do in Buddhism is necessary. So it's important. And one of the cool things about faith is it opens up so many possibilities that if you didn't have the faith, wouldn't be there. So many possibilities. I have faith in myself, faith in my family, faith in my state, faith in my country. So many possibilities just because of that one word, faith. So I don't discount faith. But for me, every time I've had faith, it's ultimately turned into confidence. And I turned out I was doing the right thing from the beginning. But I wasn't sure. And faith helped me along.